Okay, so good evening. One of the challenges in trying to find topics for these Dharma talks is that we're all in different phases of the practice. We're all navigating different terrains, and especially at this point in the arc of the retreat. Some of you metaphorically are hacking through the undergrowth. Some of you metaphorically are lying on a beautiful beach. And some of you might be still in the suburbs. But either way, there's a range of different experiences that we're working with. And they're constantly changing. So it can be a bit of a challenge to try and find a talk that might be relevant for at least one or two of you. So tonight I'm going to try and um, weave together again the two wings of wisdom and compassion by looking, returning to a theme I started exploring last night, the three universal characteristics of all experience, because that really is where all of our insight practice is leading us to to reveal on deeper and deeper levels impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not-self. And last night I mostly focused on anatta or not-self because it's the one that most people find most challenging to understand. And in the course of that exploration I suggested paying attention to when the sense of self is very strongly identified with and activated and when it's less strongly activated, so that we start to get a direct taste of the ease and the freedom that come when we are less identified with and caught up in self-referencing thought. So that was a general overview, and tonight, in the first half of the talk, I'd like to look in a little bit more detail about two particular sets of thought patterns that seem to be almost universal in so many of the students that I work with and also at times in myself. So the two afflictive patterns that I'd like to explore are firstly those self-beliefs around not being good enough, not being worthy, not having what it takes, not getting it right. And there's a lot in that. So I'll call it lack mind for short. Lack, L-A-C-K. And I hear about this lack mind a lot in the practice meetings. And everyone has their own particular flavor of it. But it has been quite shocking for me coming into the role of a teacher because I used to think it was my individual issue. And then in sitting down with person after person after person, to see and hear just how universal this pattern seems to be. And then the second afflictive mental pattern that I like to explore is in some ways rooted in or a variation of lack mind, and that's comparing mind, that very common tendency to assess oneself in relation to other people as being either better than, worse than, or equal to And this one was recognized right back in the Buddha's teachings. He referred to it as mana. And the symptoms include being constantly aware of what other people are doing and hyper-aware of what we ourselves are doing in comparison. (coughs) And often that awareness is accompanied by an inner monologue about how well or how badly we're doing relative to those other people, or sometimes to we ourselves comparing to other retreats. And this comparing mind shows up pretty much anywhere where there are other people, in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities, in our neighbors, in our sanghas, here on retreat. So I'm going to focus on these two common afflictive thought patterns and talk about some ways of working with them. And hopefully those same 
antidotes can be applied to any other afflictive thought patterns that you might be dealing with. Okay, so coming back to lack mind, that tendency of approaching everything from a sense of lack, of not having enough, of not being good enough, of being inadequate, unlovable, fundamentally flawed. And in Buddhist terms, this is an example of Sankara, that fourth of the five clinging aggregates that I mentioned last night. It's a volitional formation, a mental construct that we ourselves have created through our clinging to it, identifying with it, taking it personally, and then inhabiting it as if it was actual reality. And this misperception stops us from seeing clearly. It keeps us locked in a small sense of me, permanently isolated and disconnected from other human beings around us. And early on in my own practice, lack mind was something I struggled with for quite a few years before I finally got to recognize it. And early on I believed that it was something unique to me. It was because of who I was and it's from my specific family and social conditioning. And I also believe that by contrast, everyone else had it all together. Everyone else was fundamentally well-balanced and living blissfully free of even the slightest trace of neurosis. And so as I just mentioned, it was only when I came into the teaching room that I, and I started to hear so many people describing similar struggles that I got a sense of just how common this pattern is. And to just to get a sense of that, just in case some of you are skeptical, has anyone not ever recognized any trace of those kind of patterns? <laughs> so now we can all compare ourselves to you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks a lot, Aidy. No, I think most of us, I mean, maybe right now we're in a, in a positive phase of the retreat and they might not be so active for some of you, but you might remember previous. Anyway, just to give a real life example of this. A few years ago now I taught a, a series of classes and we were exploring afflictive mental states and how to transform them. And in the first class, as a way of trying to just ease gently into the theme, I asked people to make a list of anxieties that commonly came up for them. One, in the realm of daily life, and then two, in the realm of their Dharma practice. And then I collected all the lists that they'd compiled, and I typed it up into a single document just to share with the group. And if you'd asked me to guess beforehand what people would have shared, I probably would have had a pretty good idea. But still, when I read the actual lists, it was poignant, actually painful, to see and hear the same themes coming up over and over and over again. So that single phrase, not good enough, came up numerous times. And there were lots of variations of that phrase, such as not having enough money, not being smart enough, not working fast enough, not being worthy enough. Not enough was the dominant theme. And then the second major theme was around rejection, abandonment, and not belonging. For example, fear of failure. Fear that people won't like me for who I am. Fear of being alone. Fear of being outside a family or tribe. Fear of being found out as a fraud. So some of you might have recognized some of those. But I wanted to share just a few examples because what was so striking to me was that the people who produced this list were a group of self-selected Dharma people who wanted to study, who were interested in understanding themselves, and who were oriented to practicing wisdom and compassion. And even within that group of people, the deep sense of unworthiness and fear, fear of rejection, was so pervasive. 
And, strikingly, almost everyone felt that they were the only ones who were experiencing it. And it wasn't until they saw the list that everyone else came up with that they started to realize they were not alone. So again, just to illustrate how common this lack mind is. And one place that it can show up in terms of retreat practice, just to bring it perhaps a little closer to home, is in the practice meetings, the individual meetings with the teachers, in this case, me. And this, even though every retreat I've ever been on, there are these practice meetings with the teachers, I've never heard anyone talk about it in a Dharma talk. And yet in my own experience, the individual meetings often bring up a sense of lack mind. And the first symptom that this might be happening is perhaps the tendency to, pr- to spend a lot of time rehearsing before the actual meeting. Now, of course, it's normal just to jot down a few points or questions about what you want to say. But if this turns into hours of ruminating about, should I say this, and how is that going to sound, and will this sound intelligent, or will it sound stupid, over and over, that's the beginning phase of lack mind. And so if you notice that starting to come up, to see, even to be able to name it, oh, okay, lack mind starting to play out. Yeah, okay, anxiety is like this. Lack mind is like this. Can I just know it with compassion? And just that is a powerful practice. And then in the meeting, in the actual meeting, to try to be aware of any underlying kind of flickerings of desire for approval or fear of rejection or sometimes, and again I'm speaking from my own experience now, waves of irritation and frustration or suddenly feeling like a four-year-old. All of that, for me at least, has played out in the individual meetings. So just to normalize this, rather than have it be a source of shame. And then there have been other times when I thought in the moment the practice meeting had gone okay, maybe even quite well, but then I would find myself spending hours doing a sort of post-mortem analysis of it and whether the teacher really got what I'd said or whether I was just pretending to understand. Or if it was a group meeting, whether the other people in the group thought I was a bit weird. <laughs> okay, so all of these different sankharas can come up. And when we recognize them, just see Try to withdraw the energy from it. Try to remember how universal it is and not take it so personally. So the close cousin of this lack mind is comparing mind. And again, this was recognized all the way back in the time of the Buddha. As I said, it was known as mana. And it's a term that's usually translated into English as conceit. And it refers to that very common tendency to assess ourselves in relation to others as being either better than, worse than, or equal to. And in the Buddha's understanding, all three of these are equally forms of delusion because they're rooted in a misunderstanding that there's a fixed identity, a static personality that can be compared. And just to keep in mind that although in English, the word conceit usually means superior. In the Buddha's teachings, thinking ourselves inferior is equally a form of of conceit. So we see this comparing mind playing out in relation to other people. We can also see it playing out in relation to our own lives. So comparing to how we used to be in the past with how we are now or anticipating how we're going to be in the future. And if we look more closely, there's a sense of someone who needs to improve, to get better, to make progress. And 
And so it's not that, so we can see this playing out just even in the course of a sitting. We can come in with the expectation, okay, this is the one where I finally get it. The mind is going to settle. Awaken factors are going to come into play. Are they happening yet? It's not happening yet. How's my calm? It's not very calm. How's my concentration? Not doing so well. Where is that rapture they keep talking about? So comparing mind is at work again, even in within one sitting. And it's not that we're not wanting discernment. So discernment is recognizing how is the quality of the mind. But it's not taking them personally. So we're learning how to release the unskillful mental qualities. This is wise effort. And so in terms of how to release comparing mind and lack mind, we can actually use the three universal characteristics of anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not-self, as allies to help these sankharas to release. So impermanent, imperfect, impersonal. So the first one, impermanence, we can consciously remind ourselves when one of these so seemingly solid sankharas gets its hooks into us, we can remember the truth of change. And rather than getting tangled up in it and trying to get rid of it and back in with it, bless you, we can just know, okay, this is arising due to conditions. It will pass due to conditions. This too shall pass. Because of the truth of change, at some point it will disappear of its own accord. And so we don't need to struggle with trying to get rid of it. So we simply can see its impermanent nature. But often we tend to collapse into the afflictive state and unconsciously make it feel more solid and more permanent by the way we relate to it with our inner dialogue. So back on the opening night I mentioned how in the context of taking the precepts, the precept around not lying, not speaking harshly, we can can apply that to our inner dialogue as an ethical training. And in my own practice, it was quite a, a turning point when I realized that if I'm committed to ethical conduct in relation to speech, if I'm committed to practicing wise speech, then I have to apply those same standards of kindness and honesty to my own inner speech as I do to speaking to others. And when I started looking at my inner dialogue, I was pretty shocked to actually realize how often what I was telling myself was distorted, sometimes actually seriously untrue. And one way we distort things is by using what psychologists call eternalizing statements. So these are statements such as, I am always anxious. I never experience any calm. I'm constantly getting it wrong. So words like always and never are symptoms of (coughs) what are known as absolutist thinking. An absolutist thinking is an unhealthy thinking style that psychologists recognize is often linked to anxiety and to depression. And in Buddhist terms, this thinking style is unhealthy because it reinforces the delusion of permanence. So if you do happen to notice those words coming up in the mind, always, never, you might experiment with changing that internal language to play with it and to see if you can find something that's more accurate, more factually true. So rather than, I'm always anxious, I have a tendency to feel anxious in certain circumstances. Or rather than, I never experience any calm. So far on retreat, I haven't had many experiences of tranquility yet. And rather than, I'm constantly getting it wrong, 
I sometimes feel that my practice isn't going as well as it could. Do you hear the difference, just energetically? How one tends to solidify and fix and reinforce an identity, and the others leave a bit more room for uh, flexibility. Do you think changing big statements like that is a lifetime work, or something that you constantly end up having to do, or do you think you can change it enough that you eventually recognise it before it becomes a statement in your head to stop it? So, if I heard rightly, you're asking if changing those I am statements is a lifetime of practice or whether you can get to the point where they don't arise as much? Yeah. Yeah, the latter, I would say. It is a practice, but the more we tune in, we get sensitive to that inner language. The more quickly we see it, the easier it releases, and eventually it comes up less and less often. But, as I keep saying, it's a training. And then the other piece, uh, sometimes when I tell people to notice that tendency to eternalize, they try to convince me that actually I'm wrong and that their personal painful patterns have always been there. They're constantly, continuously present and they will be into the future forever and ever. Amen. So if you do have that sense... Again, I invite you just to investigate it a little more closely. And one way we can challenge this misperception is just to notice the intensity of that state and that it's actually fluctuating. And to track that, we can use a scale of 0 to 10. So if 10 is the most intense and 0 is nothing, We could take anxiety as an example. So let's say 10 is a full-blown panic attack and 0 is complete calm. You can just check throughout the day where is the level of anxiety now and notice it's constantly changing. So perhaps you're sitting here and it's a 2 or a 3. Then you go into the dining room and around all the other people it goes up to a 6 or a 7. So just to notice that it's changing and it's not as fixed as we often try to tell ourselves it is. And the second advantage of tracking this is that when we do recognize that the anxiety is down lower, we can let ourselves really feel into that as a counter to the inbuilt negativity bias that tends to pay a lot more attention to when the afflictive states are present and much less awareness of when they're gone. So the second of the three characteristics, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, imperfection, can also be a powerful ally to help these states release. Dukkha, though, is hard to accept because I think in so many of us, and certainly in mainstream society, There is a drive to keep making things better, to improve or even perfect. And many of us do take a huge amount of time and energy trying to control our external circumstances, trying to make everything around us just the way we want it to be, and even the people around us be exactly the way we want them to be. And often we are driven by this unconscious assumption that if I can just do X, Y, or Z, then everything will be okay. Then I'll be happy. But as we know, that happiness is (coughs) impermanent. So just settling in to the understanding that it's never going to be perfect. There is Dukkha. This is the first noble truth. However, acknowledging the truth of unsatisfactoriness doesn't mean just giving up completely. I think one famous teacher said, I think it was a Tibetan, or maybe a Zen teacher said, you are all perfect exactly as you are, and you could use a little improvement. <laughs> so we're holding that balance. Of Sorry, what, he what could do with a little improvement? You. He said, you're all perfect exactly as you are. And you could do with a little improvement. 
So it's just one of those paradoxes. Yeah, that's great. So we're not falling into apathy, but we're also not relentlessly striving and turning our whole practice into a giant self-improvement project. And so again, that's why I've been orienting us to not take things like the hindrances personally, to not think they're wrong, they're bad, they shouldn't be happening. Because we're human beings with vulnerable human bodies and vulnerable human hearts and vulnerable human minds, all of us are susceptible to greed, to hatred, delusion. This is normal and natural. And as far as I know, there isn't a human being alive who is completely and utterly immune from them. So even though we might understand this in theory, often there still is a sense that there's something very personal about our own unique shortcomings. So here we can bring in the third characteristic, anatta, the understanding that everything we experience is an impersonal process and there isn't a fixed, solid me in here who's dwelling at the center of the universe as it so often feels. Or as one Zen teacher said, that common tendency to think of ourselves as that little piece of excrement at the center of the universe. So again, we have that paradox <laughs> of the sort of the narcissism and the negativity. Quite a gruesome image, actually. <laughs> I was going to leave it out, but then I couldn't resist because it do, it captures something. So coming back to not self again, we want to pay attention to the self reinforcing language. So again, in my own practice, there was a phase when I started to really listen to the inner statements that began with the words, I am. And to see how often these I am statements, when I really looked at them, were not actually true. At best, sometimes they were partially true, sometimes they were temporarily true, but they were almost never as fully true as my mind was telling myself. So again, we can, with statements like, I'm just an angry type, we can tell ourselves, under certain conditions, I have a tendency to get irritable. Instead of telling myself, I'm a victim of workplace bullying, eventually, it might become, in a highly toxic work environment, I found it hard to stand up for myself. So we're not denying that there aren't issues or challenges or difficulties, but we're looking at how we might be collapsing ourselves into a fixed identity there. So we can bring in Anicca Dukkha Anatta as sort of wisdom lenses to investigate, to explore where and how we might be solidifying, making permanent, taking personally, what actually is simply a process of conditions arising and passing away. And we have two wings to awakening, because sometimes the wisdom isn't strong enough to really do that and to help those patterns release. The afflictive patterns can get such a hold on us that the mind can't make any headway with them. And at those times, we probably need to turn more to the heart aspect of the practice. To work very directly with the painful emotions that might be keeping the thought patterns locked in. So I'd like to just take a little bit of time now to look at the compassion wing. Remembering the compassion wing includes all of the heart practices. So all four of the Brahma-Vihara qualities. And tonight I'd like to just touch in to the third one, which is mudita, 
or appreciative joy. Because mudita can be a very powerful antidote to the misery and the inadequacy of lack mind and comparing mind. And just to acknowledge that of these four Brahma-viharas, it's mudita that tends to get the least attention. And again, I think this is because of the mind's negativity bias. We see it individually and collectively, that tendency to pay more attention to what's painful and threatening than to what's benign or even nourishing. So mudita is the heart's capacity to feel happiness joy and gladness and traditionally it's an emphasis on the capacity to feel gladness for somebody else's happiness so it also includes flavors of appreciation and gratitude and it can be a very uplifting and inspiring quality so two Dharma teachers Caroline Jones and Paul Burroughs put together a a description of all four of the Brahma-Vihara qualities that I often share. And I'll read you just their definition of mudita now. It says, Mudita is the love that celebrates. It's an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. If it slides into agitated excitement, equanimity brings the heart back into balance. So mudita is the love that celebrates and it celebrates other people's happiness and good fortune. But in doing this, it might sound counterintuitive at first, but as we start to develop some capacity to do it, we start to realize how it can diminish comparing mind and lack mind. So the Tibetan master Shantideva says, makes this point beautifully, He says, all the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come from wanting pleasure for oneself. So this capacity to celebrate other people's happiness can help diminish our sense of separateness and lack. And when we really take in our own good fortune too, we feel kinder and more generous. And that helps us to feel more connected to others. And out of that interconnectedness, we stop taking our own problems quite so personally. We recognize that everyone wants to be happy just as we do. And then... Mudita can also be a powerful catalyst for the awakening factor of rapture or joy, pity, to arise. So in this way it can develop, directly support the development of insight. So how do we actually do mudita as a practice? As I think many of you know, we traditionally use phrases such as may your happiness and joy continue. May your happiness not leave you. May your happiness continue to grow. And just to acknowledge that for some people, when we come to mudita practice, even the word joy can feel like a stretch. Depending on our conditioning, it might just feel like it's not part of our emotional repertoire. So I sometimes share in relation to this, you know, I grew up, with parents from the north of England, which is not a region that is known for its capacity to celebrate and experience joy. So I don't think I even (laughs) use the word joy in relation to myself until relatively late in this practice. So when it comes to mudita practice, if joy feels like too much of a stretch, I generally just leave the word untranslated. And then you can put in whatever quality feels accessible for you, perhaps gladness or appreciation, maybe lightness. So mudita doesn't have to be a big ecstatic bliss state. It can be light, fleeting, quiet. And we can start to help incline the heart and the mind in the direction of mudita 
by consciously orienting to aspects of our lives that we can appreciate in a very immediate way. So it can be very helpful, as I've been emphasizing in this retreat, to keep orienting to what you can appreciate, what you can enjoy in the present moment, really letting in what registers as pleasant without grasping, without pushing away, just noticing pleasant and allowing any natural responses of appreciation to be there. So just in case you need any help orienting to joy, I often on retreats will ask people to leave me notes about what they appreciate about being on retreat as preparation for when I happen to give a talk on mudita. So I'll give you just a few examples from previous retreats and just see if they have bring up any response for you. So people appreciate all the efforts of the cooks and the staff taking such good care of us. The taste of the delicious food at lunch. Watching small rainbows in the steam rising from my cup of hot tea. So grateful for the opportunity to practice the Dhamma in such a beautiful, nurturing environment. Hearing the chorus of tuis outside the meditation hall every morning. Feeling hot water on my skin when taking a shower. My body walking without pain. Complete non-busyness. Time away from my family. (laughs) (laughs) So those are just a few from previous retreatants. Let's see if we can add to that list. But just to take a moment of silence now and see if you can touch into what you appreciate. Feel a sense of gratitude or happiness in relation to here on this retreat just for a moment have anything they're willing to contribute to this crowdsourcing of Mudita? Tony? Somebody else saw this as well, I think, but there was a... I was down on the track down here, and coming down uh, on the the road from the kitchen was a little herd of quails. (laughs) A herd of quails. A herd of quails. Yes. They were chattering away. Yes. One ran off to up to one side. They crossed the road. I was just entranced and delighted. Lovely. They worked their way up one side of me, up through the bush, and then out onto the road again, chattering away. And some following on behind. It was like a little, uh, you know, patupairi, the Maori word for fairies. Fairies, yeah. It, was, it, it just made me think of that. It was, yeah. it was delightful. Yes, I love that, the delightful chatter of quail. Thank you. <laughs> what else did you discover? I have a couple, two moments actually. Thank you. One was the, the moment walking in the kitchen the other night and I was chilly with, with um, chips. Corn chips? With corn chips and I was just like, finger food. This is so good. <laughs> Finger food of chili and corn chips. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. And, and the other moment was practicing walking meditation outside, and me going like walking back and forward, really serious and really kind of like practicing. I look in this meditation hall here, and I see is it Leodan? Leodan. Walking that way forwards and this way backwards. There's <laughs> <laughs> this moment of like, let's just have. Fun, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Great. 
Right. So having fun with walking meditation, forwards and backwards. That's a novel way of doing it. <laughs> Thank you. Great. Seeing how it's contagious. Yeah. Eighty. Yeah, I was really, I'm really appreciative of the um, group of people that I do vegetables with. They all get dirty hands like I do, and I decide I'm not going to be a vegetable peeler again in the rest of my life. So appreciating your veggie chopping yes. team. Okay, thank you. And, and I think the other thing I want to put out there and appreciate is um, you as a retreat leader, in that you always have the right word at the right time. And, I mean, the more I have staff with you, the more I've valued your, and respected your um, intellect and your um, compassion together. Take the intellect with the wife and the you know what I mean. Okay, thank you. So just appreciating, yeah, what you're hearing in terms of Dhamma. Lovely. Thank you. Anyone else? I, I appreciate being in silence, wonderful silence, but not being alone. Yes. Mm -hmm. A joint companionable mm -hmm. tribe feeling. Yeah, lovely. Mm -hmm. So being in silence, but not being alone with that <laughs> joint companionable tribe feeling. That's a great description. Well, Thank you. Tribe, a joint companionable tribe feeling. That sense of togetherness and solitude. Yeah. Lovely. Thank you. Wendy. Um, the evening sun on my face. Yes. And catching a glimpse of someone eating with their eyes closed with absolute bliss. <laughs> <laughs> so the evening sun on your face and catching a glimpse of someone eating with their eyes closed and... A look of bliss. <laughs> yeah, so it's contagious. Quite a few of the examples that you're sharing are, are shared. Lovely, thank you. So I'm feeling lighter and uplifted. So that's a powerful way of, of kick-starting our mudita practice by in any moment just tuning in to what's available now. And pretty much always we can find something to appreciate and then traditionally we share that quality of joy with others so we're invited to notice, to tune in to the good fortune, the good qualities of other people. And as many of you know, we traditionally don't practice mudita for ourselves. We start with a good friend and then a neutral person then difficult people, then all beings. But we don't practice it for ourselves. And as I've shared before, when I first started doing this practice, I thought that was strange, because everywhere else in the Buddha's teachings we're told not to make a distinction between self and other. And in all the other Brahma-Vihara practices, we do include ourselves. So it just didn't make sense. Well, why here are we suddenly excluded? So I went to a Pali scholar and asked him what this word mudita means. And he said originally it just meant gladness. And the word itself doesn't have any sense of gladness for another. And that actually that practice that I just described as of offering mudita to different categories of people, that developed after the lifetime of the Buddha. And as far as we know, the way mudita was practiced at the time of the Buddha, it was more like the radiating energy style that we did earlier today in relation to metta. So the instructions are there are just to abide, pervading the whole world with a mind imbued with gladness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. And then we expect pervade that energy in the four directions, above, below, and all around. So that's how mudita was traditionally practiced. And 
about the same time that I was exploring all this, I found a teaching that the Buddha gave to a layman by the name of Mahanama. And this man, Mahanama, according to the suttas, he lived in a household that was, quote, dusty and crowded with children. So he went to the Buddha and said, you give all these teachings for monastics, but please offer some teachings suitable for a layperson like me. And the Buddha told him that he should contemplate six different things every day. And that if he did this, he would develop, among other qualities, the kind of rapturous joy that leads to profound concentration, which in turn leads to clear seeing to insight. So those six things that the Buddha advised Mahanama to contemplate, some of them are fairly traditional. So to contemplate the good qualities of the Buddha, to contemplate the good qualities of the Dharma or the teachings, to contemplate the good qualities of the Sangha, the community who are following those teachings. And then the next two are what really interested me. He said Mahanama should contemplate his own generosity and contemplate his own good qualities and then the good qualities of the devas or the angels. So when I first read this invitation to practice one's contemplating, appreciating one's own generosity and one's own good qualities, I was a little bit horrified just at the idea of doing that. And perhaps because I had that reaction, I decided I need to do it. (laughs) And it was quite confronting at first. And sometimes when I share this practice with students, there is a similar response, almost of fear. Again, because of that unworthiness that I mentioned. And there can be a sense for some people that we somehow deserve to suffer. So we can have this very deep-seated individual conditioning of unworthiness. But then also our collective and societal conditioning. So in England and in New Zealand, where I grew up, we talk about not blowing your own trumpet. And pride comes before a fall. And in Australia and New Zealand we have the tall poppy syndrome where anybody who stands out gets chopped down to signs. And apparently in Japan they have a saying that the nail that sticks out gets hammered flat. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, this is not unique. There's something that wants us to not go anywhere near acknowledging our strength. So it's not surprising we have a fear of being seen. But as the Buddha pointed out to Mahanama, this openly acknowledging the good qualities we do have turns them into a resource and it develops confidence in this path. In a way, you could say that our good qualities are a gift of the Dharma, And to deny or disown or dismiss them is in a way disrespectful. So not taking ownership in the sense of making them into me and mine, but just opening up to the full spectrum that we do have good qualities as well as not so good qualities. And as I've shared, when I did start doing this practice, I'd I'd assumed that I'd have to be careful that it didn't make me inflated or special. But actually I found the opposite was true. That when I was more connected to the whole spectrum, including my good qualities, I was much more easily able to connect and appreciate the good qualities of other people too. And I felt more at ease and more sense of kinship instead of that more usual comparing mind. And then as I continued to explore them, I realized that I couldn't actually say they were my good qualities anyway. Some of them came, were instilled in me from my parents, some from my teachers or my friends, the Buddha's teachings, my meditation practice. Like everything else, they were arising from causes and conditions. And so I couldn't really take ownership of them and think of them as mine. And so I noticed that just as the Buddha described, I felt more at ease, happier, 
and clearer when I could be aware of my strengths as well as my weaknesses. So the more we can open up to the full spectrum of our human experience, the more we can start to move into the terrain of equanimity, which is the last of these four Brahmaviharas, the heart and mind that are completely steady, balanced, and ultimately experiencing the deepest possible peace of Nibbāna. So I'll close with a quote from Gil Fransdall on the power of how these good qualities can manifest. He says, Buddhism recognizes many beautiful aspirations, including wishes of goodwill and kindness for others, the desire for happiness, and all the other wholesome qualities of mind. Central to Buddha's practice are the aspirations for freedom and for the alleviation of the suffering of others. But Buddhism doesn't require us to desire these. When the heart is open and relaxed, these wishes often bubble up naturally. These aspirations can flow through us without egotism or craving. They can seem so natural that they appear impersonal. Just as water flows downhill, so the unimpeded heart flows to freedom and to service. The healthy desire for freedom and compassion can flow like a mighty river that finds its rest in reaching the vast ocean. So thank you for your attention. Let's just take a moment to sit quietly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.